And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Well, in one of the more eyebrow-raising transfers in the January window, Arsenal signed Jorginho from Chelsea. Meanwhile, Manchester United had to react and make another loan signing in Marcel Sabitzer following injury to Christian Eriksen. Are these shrewd moves to help both clubs as they aim to win trophies this season? Uh, before bigger signings in the summer. We'll find out. I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. We can start this evening with breaking news from Gail Davis, who is at the Emirates. What can you tell us, Gail? Jorginho is now an Arsenal player. To win it in stoppage time. Jorginho! What does Jorginho bring to Arsenal? Well, simply for me, I think it's control. OK, as you were hearing just moments ago, the deal has been done, this loan deal for Marcel Sabitzer to be a Manchester United player. Marcel Sabitzer took it on the chest and he hits a beauty! As only he can, Marcel Sabitzer! I am absolutely delighted. If I was going to say that I can go and get a uh, replacement, a uh, short-term replacement, a uh, drop of a hat for Ericsson, Sabitzer, He's a player that you would have gone, oh, if I can get him, I'd take him. Uh, to discuss Jorginho to Arsenal and Sabitzer to Manchester United, I'm joined by the Athletics' David Ornstein and Adam Crafton. Uh, I just want to start with you, Adam. I, I don't know if you're uh, surprised by this, but on Sky yesterday, Paul Merson described Arsenal's uh, signing of Jorginho as outstanding and a top signing, and Manchester United signing of uh, Sabitzer as a panic. So are you surprised by the comments of the former Arsenal player, Paul Merson? Uh, no. Sabitzer was a panic signing because Man United were put into a panic situation because one of their best players, their most important players, got a serious injury. So of course it's a panic signing. But just because it's done in a situation of panic doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad signing. And I think, you know, when I first saw the news on the morning of deadline day that Christian Eriksen... Manchester United were saying would be out until late April, early May. And if a club's saying that, it might even be a kind of optimistic take if that's what they're prepared to say publicly. My initial response was, well, they've probably left it too late to get anyone who's half decent. I was even thinking, do they try and go for someone like Jorginho and try and hijack whatever Arsenal were doing with Jorginho? Because he's that kind of Ericsson <laughs> kind of dictating midfield player. And I was struggling to think of names, but then they've, you know, they've come up with one that's been at Red Bull Leipzig, that's been at Bayern Munich. And after like of, of most things that Manchester United have done in the transfer market over the past few years, where normally we're sat here scratching our heads, that time I was actually impressed by the speed of the response, the quality of the response. And it was, you know, you, there was a lot of late drama in the transfer window last night, but United just got that done. So I think from a Manchester United point of view, I think fans will be relieved that the club were able to react. We'll do more on Sabitzer in a little while. The fact that, that Adam uh, David mentioned that, that Manchester United could have gone for 
Jorginho as well. Pro- probably highlights that this is a very canny signing by Arsenal. They certainly think so, Mark. And I think there was an initial scepticism on the basis of his age, which is a bit of a throwback to Arsenal signing others from Chelsea, like Willian and David Luiz, in a time where they were not looking so good and those deals did not do very well. There was also the positional issue in that Arsenal were aiming to sign a six. It's what they needed in the absence of Mohamed Elneny through a knee injury that's now been confirmed as long-term because he's undergone surgery. Constant doubts over Thomas Partey's durability, although he seems to be holding up okay at the moment, about Granit Xhaka's availability um, with his uh, penchant for the referee's notebook. And that's why they looked at Moises Caicedo and tried to bring him in. That's why they have such admiration for Declan Rice and may try to bring him in and explored a number of other options, I'm sure, for that holding midfield role. And then they bring in Jorginho. However, there is a wider perspective to this. What is available when you've only got 24-ish hours to go? Who do you like? Well, Arsenal liked Jorginho because Mikel Arteta was part of the Manchester City hierarchy that tried to sign him from, was it Napoli? Uh, he ended up going to Chelsea. Arsenal tried to sign him a few years ago before Marina Granovskaya put a block on it. So there's clear admiration there from Mikel Arteta. We've seen him uh, embracing Jorginho as he has left the pitch in games that Arteta has taken charge of for Arsenal against Chelsea. We know he's a high-level player, a proven international with Italy, won the Euros against England at Wembley and multiple uh, elite trophies at club level. When the news started to filter through to the Arsenal playing squad and staff, it generated a really positive response because players know and staff within the industry know good quality players and professionals. The view was he's got a fantastic technical level, tactical understanding and interpretation for what Mikel Arteta will want him to do and how he can fit into Arsenal's method. Vast experience. And as Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times put it, you could argue he's exactly what this young and relatively inexperienced Arsenal squad need to help guide them through a Premier League title push. They are firmly in control of this race. And if they were to pull it off and go the distance, then you suspect somebody like him could come in very handy. Adam, that's the final point. The fact that they are in a, in a title race. You sense if they were sixth or, or fifth, they might, they might not have done this and kind of muddled through. And I mean, they might not. They might have wanted him to, to push for top four. But where they are kind of feels like this this is the kind of, it's, it's 12 million quid roughly David gave us the the numbers on yesterday's podcast they're going for the title it makes sense I know it's not what Arsenal probably set out to do at the start of the window in terms of you know everyone's talking about Mudrik okay. and maybe you know one of Rice or Caicedo at some point Joao Felix Joao Felix so there's all this kind of excitement around it actually you know when you come away from it you've taken probably Brighton's best attacking player and Brighton have been you know, one of the better teams in the league over the last 12 months or so. And also a, a player who who has experience of winning things, which this Arsenal team, as talented as it, as it is, isn't full of players that have experience of winning things. And, you know, when I think of title races, I think, and I think, and particularly when I think of Arsenal late in seasons, where there has been this trend, I'm not saying it will happen again, 
where things sort of get away from them and they struggle for control and there's a loss of composure. Well, when I think of Jorginho, he's kind of the opposite of that. He is a player that exudes control and composure um, and calmness. What I am interested in is where exactly he will be. Is he just going to be on the bench and coming on for the last half hour of games to keep the ball and help see games out? I don't think that's the worst role for him, to be honest. But equally, he will see himself as someone who's come to sit on the bench. And then you start to think, well, but you have that brilliant midfield of Partey and Xhaka and Odegaard that is kind of set. So I am interested to see how he's used in the next few months, particularly if Arsenal go out of the Europa League and there's not that many games. And I just want to add one point around this. And of course, there will be people that aren't massively fond of the Jorginho signing, maybe even the Trossard one as well. And those are legitimate points. They are not the players that Arsenal initially set out to get. But equally, there were some concerns, significant concerns about the level of expenditure Arsenal were prepared to go to for Mikhailo Mudrik, who they saw as a long-term signing, not necessarily for immediate impact here and now in the final four months of the season. And that's why they were looking at João Felix to add on a short-term loan deal. But then there were complaints about the level of expenditure Arsenal were going to have to do that Chelsea have committed to, to bring João Felix in, who got sent off on his first appearance. So these situations are not black and white. Furthermore, Jorginho already lives in London. He's ready to play Premier League football immediately with no period of adaptation other than to Arsenal's style and his new teammates. And finally, but very importantly, it's a one and a half year contract with the option to extend by 12 months. That means that Arsenal can still go out and sign their big midfielder in a few months time in the summer. It's relatively short term and you could argue with reflection and a bit of calmness away from the drama and hysteria of the window and the transfer market and this arms race and the um, <laughs> the frenzy salivation that, that the public have for new signings, the most expensive one, the biggest names from um, Football Manager and FIFA and, and, and the football that they watch, that actually it's a pretty good window for Arsenal. Do they come out in better shape than they went into it? And we haven't even mentioned Jakob Kivior, who was a starting player at left centre-back for Poland at the World Cup. Yes, they do. Yeah, let's just examine a little bit of what Jorginho will bring to Arsenal. We're going to hear from Mark Carey, the data analyst for The Athletic. What does Jorginho bring to Arsenal? Well, simply for me, I think it's control. Uh, he's unlikely to be the one to to take the game by the scruff of the neck and play that that final incisive pass. But from his time at Chelsea, you know that he he's going to frequently get on the ball and, of course, keep play ticking over. Uh, and if you need evidence of that sort of commanding style, uh, Jorginho has logged four of the top eight occasions of the most successful passes in a Premier League game since 2017-18. So it shows just how much he is the, the person most likely to get on the ball and be that distributor. Uh, and since the start of last season, his turnover rate, so that's the, the share in which a player loses possession from their total touches, um, his turnover rate of 12.8% is the ninth lowest among all defensive and central midfielders with 900 minutes or more played. And the lower, the better here, which is really important to show that essentially he doesn't give the ball away. Give him the ball and he'll look after it. He'll protect it. Uh, and of course, he'll redistribute it and, and be able to dictate the tempo of the game. So 
I mean, of course, he's going to provide things like a winning mentality, Premier League experience, all the cliches that come with that. But I think that the calmness and the control on the ball that he offers is what Mikel Arteta will value the most. And while that may sound bland, it might not necessarily excite Arsenal fans. Um, I think it's important that given their their push for the title, uh, that experience and authority that, that, that Jorginho can provide in central areas could prove to be crucial. Mark Carey there, data analyst for The Athletic. If you want to hear more from him, Michael Cox and our brightest tactical minds, then make sure you listen to The Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Uh, I've never been invited on there. Have you, Adam? No, I've not. I was about to ask if you host it. <laughs> no, <laughs> there's only a limit to how many things I can host in a week. And I'm, and I'm not a bright tactical mind, evidently. Otherwise, they may have asked me. Uh, a new episode every Thursday afternoon of that pod uh, this week. They're going to explore what Sean Dyche's Everton might look like. At the start of his answer, Adam, Mark, Mark said he's not going to take the game by the scruff of the neck, but he'll just keep play uh, ticking over. His uh, turnover rate is 12.8%. Um, so that's the ninth lowest amongst all defensive and central midfielders with 900 plus minutes played. So keep it ticking over. Don't lose it. And just provide the platform for those front players to do their thing. I mean, I mean, with that summary, I could be on the I could be on the tactics podcast. You could. I mean, to me, it just seems like, and I have no data or numbers to back this up. So apologies to listeners, but I kind of view him as a little bit like Christian Eriksen's been for Manchester United, a little bit like Paul Scholes was at the, towards the end of his career. Someone to kind of just sit around in that quarterback position, intercept every so often, but mostly just ping balls to those to those brilliant wingers. And, and make the pitch big and give Arsenal control of the game, which they're already very good at doing anyway, and that's their style of play. So I think as far as panic signings go, in terms of Arsenal clearly needed a midfielder, yeah, it was a panic situation, but I think they've dealt with that pretty well, you know, particularly when you look at perhaps the way that other clubs who play in blue in London have spent, it looks pretty cheap, you know, Trossard and, and Jorginho for what, for what kind of, 39, 40 million combined. And, you know, that will look incredibly cheap if they end up winning the title. You mentioned in, in your answer, uh, David, uh, before we heard from Mark, that this will also allow them to still do what they want to do in the summer. Definitely. And we've seen reports linking Arsenal with a move for Declan Rice. Um, he is claimed to be their priority target. And that maybe they're the front runners at this point in time. Are they the front runners partly because they could win the title, so he'd be going to the title winners, and also partly because of what happened on deadline day with Arsenal signing Jorginho and Chelsea breaking the British transfer record to sign a player who plays in Declan Rice's position? Well, I'm referring to reports rather than my own information. I just need to make that clear. And those reports came before deadline day. And so that points to the fact that Arsenal have probably done quite a lot of work on this already but it also points to the market will Chelsea go through even before it was confirmed Enzo Fernandez was coming with a move for Declan Rice do they want him back at Stamford Bridge uh, given he was released uh, in his formative years will he want to go back to Stamford Bridge will the finances be right to make it happen in any circumstance let alone after Enzo Fernandez and all the other spending Chelsea have committed to what will they do on contract renewals for the likes of Angolo Kante and Matteo Kovacic who else might they look to bring in from their um, the different 
balls that they're juggling that we've mentioned before, which include the likes of Romeo Lavia, Moises Caicedo, Alexis McAllister, and there will be names that are escaping me in addition to those. Arsenal seemingly have a clear need. They have been showing their financial muscle in the market to an extent that would suggest a move for Declan Rice with two years left on his contract at West Ham and with the expectation that this is going to be the summer where the West Ham hierarchy are prepared to trade him. Seems to fit quite nicely. David, Declan Rice's valuation, I mean, notwithstanding the fact he'll have two years left on his contract, also he's probably not had the best of seasons relative to sort of the last couple of years just because the team in general hasn't been as good, didn't make a huge impression at the World Cup. But also when you think this summer, you're probably going to have Jude Bellingham on the market, Moises Caicedo on the market, as you say, McAllister. I'm not saying they're all kind of identical players. But does does his valuation become a little bit cheaper compared to, say, last summer or the summer before that? I'm not sure if it's because of those competitors for slots at the biggest clubs because that wouldn't really bother West Ham. I think it's more the contractual situation. It's their last chance to reap a massive transfer fee for him. Um, But I think compared to last year when West Ham had no intention or need to sell and the valuation, if there was one, was said to be in excess of £100 million, the word that I'm hearing from around the industry is that 75, 80, 85, a more realistic figure for Declan Rice this coming summer than has been the case before. Even after what Chelsea have gone and done with Enzo Fernandes? I think so. Because if I'm West Ham, I'm looking at that and saying he's probably 150 million. Ultimately, West Ham can, can do whatever they want on this. But the reality is that they'll probably need to trade him financially, uh, given they don't Uh, benefit from say Champions League football we don't know how this season will finish for them you know they are in threat of relegation Uh, they'll like to think that they'll pull away from it and so there are multiple undecided factors you know if in the worst case scenario for them that they were to go down then the value will drop much further so they have to be realistic about this and I'm sure I'd like to think they've had some grown-up conversations with his representatives Of course, we then need to keep an eye on other clubs like Manchester United, who have often been linked with Declan Rice, but also who will be the ownership at the time. And are they still in the market to bolster their midfield in a way that we have been led to believe in recent years because they've been short of top midfield options until the arrival of Casemiro and of course Paul Pogba departed and then Manchester City. I don't sense that they are strong on Declan Rice, but if Ilkay Gundogan leaves, then clearly there is a, a need And then we start to talk about the domino effect that you've touched upon with Jude Bellingham. Where does he go? Liverpool. And it's just the sense you get, which can, of course, change that maybe it's an Arsenal-Chelsea toss-up for Declan Rice as things stand. But, Mark, back to your original point, the Jorginho deal very much means that a high-profile, high-level number six is going to be on the agenda for Arsenal as things stand. And who knows what avenue they decide to take whether it be Rice maybe they go back in for Caicedo or if others emerge and if anything in recent times we've seen that others do emerge because this time last year we wouldn't have been talking about Enzo Fernandez. No and we're going to move on uh, from Arsenal and return uh, to Manchester United signing of Marcel Sabitzer next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover 
Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. So let's have a little bit more now uh, on the pod on uh, Manchester United signing Marcel Sabitzer on loan from Bayern Munich until the end of the season. When you were talking about Declan Rice, David, I thought it was interesting when you, you mentioned, well, Manchester United may come in in the summer. And Adam had previously said, well, they may ask for £150 million for him. Um, so if United to come in for him, they'd have to find some money from somewhere because all their January transfer windows have been on loan. Amid the potential investment or takeover of Manchester United, permanent signings were not possible it seems in terms of the budget for January 2023 it was only loans and low-cost ones at that so Valt Weghorst fitted the bill Uh, it seems that Sabitzer did as well although I did hear that that is quite an expensive deal for four months on Sabitzer and it required of course a request to the Manchester United ownership and Approval was granted. I guess it is for all situations, so I don't want to over-dramatise that. Expensive in terms of what they've paid Bayern as a loan fee or expensive in taking on his wages or both? Both, I would imagine, and there will be commissions around it as well. And everybody is talking about these being six-month deals. They are financially, but then, well, not quite. Um, but they're not in football terms. Season ends in in, in, in May, depending on, on how far you go in European competition. It will 
all come down to the finances for the summer. Manchester United do plan around the summer window. The January window is only normally used for emergencies or, or certain plans that can be brought forward like Bruno Fernandes. And United are continuing their preparations in a business-as-usual sense under John Murta, Andy O'Boyle and the people around them, Steve Brown on the recruitment side of matters, but they don't know what's going on with this potential takeover. It's being dealt with by Rain Group on behalf of the Glazer family, and from what we hear, there's not a great deal of communication or updates to the Manchester United executives. The news, when it emerged, took them by surprise, by all accounts. Maybe even that extends to Richard Arnold, the chief executive. And therefore, what Manchester United are going to be able to do, who will own them, who will be in charge of recruitment come the summer, what those people want to do or not do, we've seen reports of Harry Kane, for example, um, remains completely unknown. You can have plans, but it doesn't mean that they will be carried out. It's a strange moment for Manchester United because it feels a little bit like just as, just as the owners are kind of at a point where they might have got it right in terms of who their chief executive is and who their head coach is. Uh, I think there's still question marks about John Murta to a certain extent, given some of what happened in the summer. But it's probably the most optimistic fans have felt about what's going on on the pitch. And now all of a sudden you're going into another summer where you're just not sure what you're able to do. I mean, the other major issue that Manchester United have in the summer is financial fair play to remain within the, the regulations. And they, you know, when, when you think Manchester United have spent a hell of a lot of money, both on wages and transfer fees over the last few years, and they don't bring very much in, they don't sell very well. And as a result of that, they're, they're very much on the border with regards to financial fair play. And they're having a lot of meetings with UEFA at the moment around, you know, what do we need to do? How do we make sure we stay within it? So that, that's been one of the reasons why January has been tighter. It's not just a case of the owners don't want to spend money on players. I mean, that might be the case as well, but part of it has been in relation to financial fair play. I, th I think in the summer, I mean, the priorities for them are quite clear. They want a striker. I think they want a young central midfielder. They, they may do a goalkeeper unless David De Gea extends his contract and they probably may end up doing another centre-half because I think there's probably question marks about the future of Harry Maguire and Victor Lindelof. So for you to be getting the quality of player that Eric Ten Hag wants in those positions, you're probably looking at 150 million minimum spend. You know, if you look at what the market's doing at the moment, that, that that's the reality of it. And if the ownership doesn't change, it's going to be very interesting to see how they go about, one, financing that, and two, how they make it work in regards to financial fair play. I mean, it is absolutely essential that United get the Champions League for those reasons. It's not just a case of what it may have been five years ago, which is we're Manchester United and we belong in the Champions League. Now, for financial reasons, they really, really need to make it. Um, and I think that's probably part of the reason why they did react so strongly when the Christian Eriksen news came in. Because I think actually most Manchester United fans who will have watched the team a lot over the last few months will have thought Christian Eriksen has been brilliant in terms of from a free transfer point of view. But often from sort of 65, 70 minutes becomes a little bit tired. He quite often gets replaced after that time. And there is almost always a drop off in United's performance because they don't really have anyone like him that can come on. It's always sort of Thread or McTominay and in very different players. And, and that's cost them in certain games, but I think particularly against Crystal Palace away. So United needed a player anyway, but 
as ever with them, it kind of took a situation to develop the injury for them to, to, to properly respond to it. But I think, you know, Sabitzer seems like a good solution for now. And also, as Adam just said there, David, and he, as he said at the start, it was a very clean transfer for Manchester United and they certainly haven't managed many of them over recent years. It, it News came out, it wasn't a circus, the deal was done, uh, it didn't miss a deadline and and everybody moves on. It it felt it felt quite unusual for a Manchester United deal if past experiences are anything to go by. Yeah, and look, it was a rocky transition from the previous regime led by Ed Woodward to that overseen now by Richard Arnold, John Murta, who was there before but has now been given greater prominence and authority. And let's not disguise how chaotic the summer felt at times with the Anthony pursuit in particular. I remember Cody Gakpo was in the mix. They actually came out of it pretty well in terms of Casemiro in particular. But some of the stories around that window that you and we all saw and some of the things that we heard gave cause for concern. But they actually appear to be taking baby steps towards an impressive operation that is quite slick and efficient. And yeah, Eyebrows were raised at the vague horse deal, but it was horses for courses. It was low cost. It was what Eric Ten Hag wanted. They can't be accused as a club of not spending money because of the summer outlay, which I think is a big factor, as Adam's touched upon, in in why the finances are so restricted around financial fair play, etc. And then Sabitzer, we touched upon it being um, a panic, but there were clear circumstances for that that were not of Manchester United's making, the Ericsson injury. And to turn around on deadline day and to generate the idea of Sabitzer, very high level and experienced player, in particular at RB Leipzig, Austria International, 28-year-old in the position that they wanted, hasn't gone so well at Bayern Munich, so there's an opportunity there to negotiate it, to get him on a flight, bring him over, get the medical records from Bayern Munich, get it registered in good time for the deadline and come out of the window with a squad that in number is, I think, what Eric Ten Hag was content with because he's very clinical in his view. That's why Anthony Alanga wasn't allowed to go. He couldn't afford to lose another number with Jaden Sancho having not been available recently, injury concerns around Anthony Martial, now with Christian Eriksen too, that he would like to have done more, no doubt, Eric Ten Hag. I think he wanted one more body in but he didn't want players to leave he's very clear about what he needs for the continued competition for these four trophies there are four competitions and that's yeah I, I think it is probably going to be squad depth that's the biggest risk to United season particularly because Ten Hag seems pretty keen on not really rotating his his best players too much I mean you know they played Reading on Saturday night and they played Forest a few days earlier and he pretty he pretty now he pretty much now has sort of probably five or six indispensables that he will just play in every game and you know there was a cost cost to that because of what happened with Andy Carroll and Christian Eriksen so that is going to be a challenge I, th- I think the biggest thing you know regardless of kind of Man United's recruitment approach and all this thing the the reason why yesterday was less dramatic is is mostly because of the results on the pitch and what Eric Ten Hag is doing on the training field and the general job he's doing right his authority and composure is making everyone else's job far less dramatic, right? If if Man United were in the position they were a year ago, I think regardless of your approach to recruitment or anything, 
just the general noise and hysteria around it would have been far greater. So I think a lot of this is, you know, just sort of underlining again that the most important person at Manchester United at the moment is Ten Hag. And they are trying to build and develop the structure around him, which will continue to take time. And it may not all be as straightforward as... Uh, people would like to see and yes they're not a Manchester City or the previous Liverpool of the recruitment world yet but they do seem to be adding people on the operations side on the analysis side and, and, and various different departments and roles that do indicate that United are moving in the right direction and I know a lot of people won't like to hear praise for the club on this front, but I think they're in better shape than they've been at pretty much any time since Sir Alex Ferguson left. They have a couple of interesting midfielders who've come through the academy who are on the fringes as well, who he may he may give game time to mm-hmm. depending on, on the fixtures uh, that they have and how he recognises their importance. Um, just a final one on, on, on the transfer window as a whole. It feels quite feast and famine, Adam, doesn't it? Because there are going to be several clubs, and I'm probably thinking that Everton fans are going to be top of this list, who will be quite despairing after that transfer window. Yeah, I think Everton will be worried just because you look at the other teams around them and they've all spent spent money. I mean, time will tell, right, if, if that money's been spent well. But you look at Leeds have gone out and spent pretty considerably in key positions. Um, they've spent a fortune. Southampton started getting busy. Bournemouth started getting busy. And you look at Everton and it's a bit like, what have you done? And it's not very much at all. And you've also let... I mean, I, I don't think Everton fans will be crying about Anthony Gordon going, but they would have been looking at that deal and thinking, God, there's 40 million to go and get someone. And... Look, there's a cynical part of me that thinks they waited until pretty late in the window to get Sean Dyche through the door in the end. And part of me thinks, well, if you got a manager in six days earlier, that manager might have been a bit more demanding about what was going to happen at the end of the window. And I'm sure Sean Dyche will have wanted players anyway to come in. But when the turnaround's so tight, maybe you get away with it a little bit more. And there are all these ongoing questions anyway about what Everton are actually able to do in the transfer market, whether that's around regulations around financial fair play in the Premier League and just generally because of the question marks about the ownership and the source of funding and all of this kind of thing and the stadium plans do they just need that Anthony Gordon money in the books and and those are questions that Everton fans will be asking equally I do look at Everton's squad and I look at Sean Dyche and I think there's probably a coach and set of players there that's able to win five or six games between now and the end of the season in much the same way as they did last year. So I think they're in a better position than they were two weeks, two, three weeks ago in terms of I think they've got a better manager, which gives them a better chance. But yeah, I mean, clearly it's a natural inclination for supporters to look at it and think, I wish we'd done more. Uh, David's already ending this podcast on his phone. What, are you on to, are you on to more deals? I do think that already clubs have got their eye on their summer business and the stories will start to develop. Um, the market is just getting bigger, the, the sort of level of expenditure, the creativity of what clubs are trying to do. It's going to be really interesting to see how the new FIFA rules around agents are going to impact on some of their operation. Multi-club models and where players are being parked before um, moving elsewhere. The arms race at youth level is one to watch as well. You know, Manchester United, as we revealed in, in our Monday column on The Athletic, uh, have signed a, a, a top talent from Cardiff City, a striker, 
uh, Biancieri and Manchester City are always making moves in the youth market. Arsenal have got a couple of top players. Chelsea, I don't know if it actually got completed, took Southampton's best academy talent on deadline day. And so, you know, you're going to have top recruitment people ap appointed um, at youth level. There's gold rush, really, the search to uncover the, the gems and the stars of the future. The next Enzo Fernandez or, or Moises Caicedo. There were a lot of people saying as Arsenal were pushing higher and higher for Caicedo and they remember the fee he joined Brighton from and what others were quoted for him before he even joined Brighton, which was lower than the 4.5 million they paid, is why aren't these recruitment operations with how advanced technology and their resources and finances are and the level of their intellect within their buildings and and why aren't they finding Moises Caicedo of the future? David, I think part of the reason for that is, so take someone like Manchester United bought Facundo Pelestri, right? Mm -hmm. Who, if he'd have gone to Brighton rather than Manchester United, he might have played 40 Premier League games by now. Yeah, yeah. true. And the reality at these top clubs is, when you when you spend money, the expectation is that these players have to play now, and if they don't play now, then they're not working out. That's the perception. So uh, it's a difficult thing where you know you, people say, "Why didn't Arsenal do Moises Caicedo a year ago?" Well, how much would he have played yeah. by now? Where would his progression be? If Enzo Fernandez had joined Chelsea last summer, how would his future have worked out? Would he have just been on the bench? Would he have played the Conor Gallagher role? It is difficult. I do wonder whether like the Caicedo-Fernandez thing, you know, so many clubs now do more of their recruitment basically on their computers, right? Mm. Via watching clips and things like that. I wonder whether we'll, we'll see more feet on the ground in terms of really enabling scouts to sort of go back to the roots of developing relationships on the ground. Some clubs do do that, but I, I wonder whether the kind of real sort of return to prominence of South American recruitment in the last sort of year or so, we'll see more of that uh, from, yeah. from those big clubs. Real Madrid in particular have been fantastic at that over the last few years. Yeah, with Juni um, at Real Madrid, who's been taking players fantastically well, like Endrick most recently from Brazil, Argentina winning the World Cup and reminding everybody of the level of quality coming through there. And for every independent Del Valle that, produces a Moises Caicedo and we all say why didn't a club like Arsenal look at him when he was there and that it isn't right for them and isn't right for him at that point in time and maybe he has followed the right path and there is a food chain here that sees the biggest clubs take these players when they've got that experience under their belt even if they have to pay more money there's a Gabriel Martinelli from Ituanu who does get picked up I think it was Francis Kajijau the former Arsenal recruitment chief who who did push the club to take that risk when he had played so little football. He'd been on trial at Manchester United. They didn't go forward with it. He signs for Arsenal and now he's one of the leading attackers in the Premier League who's, who's just agreed a new uh, four and a half year contract. So there's no fine science to it. And that's perhaps part of the beauty and purity of the game we all still love to a large degree, but not entirely. Oh, blimey, yes. I, I think of all the words I, I, I might not have used to end the pod, purity being used to, to no, describe. I might have to rethink that. <laughs> uh, you haven't had much sleep. We'll forgive you. Uh, David, Adam, uh, thank you. Uh, loads more around the transfer window, obviously on The Athletic. If you're not already a subscriber, take advantage of the £1.99 a month offer for the first 12 months by going to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thank you very much for listening. The Athletic.